Please turn with me to Second uh, Peter chapter one. We'll be continuing in our our study of Second uh, Peter. Um, I'd like to to start by just giving you some of my thoughts of what Second Peter is about and uh, what he's doing, and then we'll review a little bit, do a little bit of review of the chapter, just so that we can get the the context of the verses uh, we're going to go through this morning. This morning, the verses I'm going to go through are, are 2 Peter 1, 12 through 21. But just by way of review, Second uh, Peter is instructions for living at the end of days, in the last days. Peter is wanting to teach the believer that they must grow as Christians, warn them of false teachers, tell them what will happen at the end, and encourage them to live with the right perspective. He wants them to be equipped when he is gone and have a written record that will last longer than his short earthly life. They are to be equipped for handling false teachers, those who doubt, and unbelievers, so that they will not lose hope as they wait for the coming of the Lord. As we see the world growing more and more ungodly, we can get discouraged that the Lord is not returning and putting things in order, and may appear he is not in control. But Peter explains that the delay is due to God's desire that all men, all men, should come to repentance. This is not that all men will come to repentance, but it is God's desire. God cannot contradict himself. Therefore, he cannot accept unholy people as a holy God. He can only have those who are perfect with him. And the only way for this perfection is through belief. In Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Peter addresses this letter to people who have, like precious faith, those who have believed. But men and women of faith must be able to answer those who contend with them for the reason of their hope. The Bible gives us this insight about what will happen at the beginning in Genesis and what will happen at the end of time in Revelation. This information should not paralyze us or cause us to inaction, but should cause us to be motivated as we, as we live in the present moment. That is what Peter is trying to get us to do, is to live in that present moment, to call us to action. Peter is a, a man of action, and we'll see a little bit by his actions. In chapter 1, we get this view of who wrote the book. Obviously, he says, it's Simon Peter. He calls himself the bondservant and apostle. We get who it's written to, believers of like precious faith. That's to us, isn't it? So the book is directly written to us. Chapter 1, I think the key verse in chapter 1 is verse 3. It says this, God's divine power has given us all things for life, pertaining to life and godliness. God's divine power, NASB says, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So he's given us everything we need. Just thought, asking through questions, when did he give it to us? <laughs> gave it to us at, when we had salvation. So we have it now. 
Is there any any location? Like where where did he give it to us? Well, here, unlike First Peter, he doesn't define a location. It just says it's to the saints. So it's to anywhere that we have this divine power. And how do we have this? It's a, it's a combined work, right? Jack last week gave us a, a good message that said there's there's a combined action of what the, the Lord is doing for us and what we need to do. There is this act of diligence that we need to have. And then there's this list of add to your faith these things. Well, it's not really that we can add to those things, but the Holy Spirit, God working in us, adds those things to our life. And like, why should we, why should we be focused on this? Um, well, there's the negative, so you, you could be short-sighted and blind if you're, if you're not growing in him. And then there's the positive, fruitful and useful. And then we have that, that verse that says, make more certain this calling and the entrance in the kingdom of heaven. Not that, not that there is a, a difference, but that there is this Everybody will, will see that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and everybody will know that you are a changed person, that you are headed toward this eternal kingdom that the, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has abundantly supplied to us. And that's the, the background of where we get here this morning. And a, a little bit of the context of what's going on at that time, there's, there's people they're telling believers that Jesus Christ is not returning. He is not coming again. Here and now is all there is. So live for the here and now. And here's Peter. He's saying, no, no, it's, <laughs> it's true. He is coming again. And so the passages we have this morning are Peter giving his proof that this eternal kingdom is coming, that Jesus Christ is coming. And uh, the three points I have this morning is first is Peter's actions tell that this eternal kingdom is coming. And that's 12 through 15. Then it's Peter's witness, uh, 16 and 18. He says he's an eyewitness. And then the prophetic word in 19 and through 21 speaks of the Lord Jesus coming again to the earth to reign. Let's read the passage together. I'll read uh, the NASB and you can follow along. First, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of those things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. And also, our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as it 
an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help here this morning for both speaking and listening. We ask for your help because it's your word. It is alive. It is active. It is powerful. It is not man's words. And so I ask that you would just use me to have your word go forth. Father, help your Holy Spirit to help me. Help your Holy Spirit to help the listeners. Father, we pray for those who do not know you. Father, we pray for them. We see here in this, in this book that you desire everyone to come to repentance. You do not desire any to perish. Father, help us to have love like you have love uh, for, for the lost, for the unsaved. Father, I pray that if anybody doesn't know you, that they would uh, hear the truth here this morning. Although this passage is... <laughs> does not really talk about your righteousness. We can see from the Peter's actions and what he says that it's true, that you have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so thank you for that here this morning. Thank you for uh, your son. Thank you for being with us and giving your Holy Spirit to us. In Jesus' name, amen. First, verses 12 through 15, Peter's actions. A lot of my notes uh, have come from the New King James. I read out of the NASB this morning. I've read out of a lot of different passages. Uh, here in, in verse 12, Peter's actions. He, he says to always be ready. Always be ready. But it is better, better rendered to be not be careless or negligent. So Peter thinks it's negligent for him to not speak, to not share what the Lord has put on his heart. His actions are to not be negligent, to listen to the, to the Lord, the Lord's leading. I just asked the, the question to myself, are you negligent or neglecting anything the Lord may be telling you to do? Peter made sure that he wasn't negligent to remind the believers here. The second, he leaves a reminder. In fact, he leaves uh, kind of three reminders. Uh, he talks about reminding three times. They're actually all different Greek words. And it, it gives this, at least in my mind, this idea of uh, he's reminding them of the past. Uh, here in the, in the first, he's reminding of the past. And then he's reminding them of the present and the future. Uh, he's bringing these three, three things to mind. The first one here in verse 12, 
uh, always be ready to remind you of these things. It has this idea to call one to remember something or put in one's mind. So he's calling to mind these things that they're already established in, that they already know. And it says these things. So at first glance, uh, it looks like these things may refer to the, the, the passage of 5 through 11. Just the fact that these things that we should add to our faith. The second option is that he's speaking forward, that these things are what he's going to share about his eyewitness account and the prophetic word. And the reason I say that is because I, I read some commentaries and they said the Greek is in the future tense, which means it's uh, looking for what, what's to come in the, in the passage. Um, either way, I think it's, it's good to think about or be reminded of these things to apply diligence to our faith, to remind it to grow or be to reminded of the surety of this of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, both are great to think about. I think maybe the second view might be more accurate and fits with the thought of thinking of what's in the past, something that they already know. It's kind of interesting that Peter is reminding them of things that they know and are established in. William MacDonald says this, there is always a danger in being of a preoccupied moment or a forgetful hour, so the truth must be constantly repeated. The truth must be constantly repeated. What the Bible teaches, uh, commentary says this, the value of repetition is not always appreciated, but the truth is always needed. Uh, how, how do we approach when topics are something that we've already know or are established in? I was thinking as a speaker, do we shy away from those topics because we think everybody knows and established in, and established in them? As a listener, do we despise the review of topics we already know? Uh, Peter thinks it's important to repeat. He thinks it's important here to tell them, to call to their mind. So that's the, the first part. The, the present, this present reminder, it's here in verse 13. Stir up by way of reminder. This one is basically a reminder reminding we have a list, a reminder in lots of ways of here's the groceries. It's, it's, a, it's a reminder of what's, what's needed at the house. Uh, there's a reminder of, uh, you know, reminder on calendars of going to events. So we're very familiar with reminders. Here, Peter's present life, his actions were a reminder to the believers and how, how to live with the end in view. You see, his death was imminent. He talks about this, that the Lord revealed to him that he was going to lay aside his earthly dwelling, his tent. With that in view, he's taking the time here to remind them, to show them that it's important 
to, to know how to live in the last days. What kind of example are we setting for the next generation? Are we setting an example that they will follow? I always think of this to myself. What, what, do my, what do my children see? Especially my, my two older boys. What do they see? What do I see that I don't like? And usually it's a reflection of uh, things in my life or traits or habits that I have that I don't, I don't like. You heard the old saying, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. It's very true. Um, your kids reflect it. But what kind of examples are we setting for the next generation to follow? And lastly, he gives a reminder for the future. A reminder for the future. Um, uh, verse 15, I will, I will also be diligent that any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So it has this thought of denoting a memory. He's just trying to give something that, that they can have a memory of in the future, a record after he is gone. It's interesting here, God has chosen to preserve the words of Peter here that Peter wrote. His desire to leave a reminder, I'm pretty sure Peter didn't think that that reminder would last thousands of years when he wrote it. But here we are today, thousands of years after Peter's life, being reminded of what's important or what he felt was important, being reminded that the second coming is near. What reminders are we leaving for the next generation? Judges 2.10 has this record. It's a very sad record. Another generation arose after them. This is after Joshua and after the elders. It says, another generation rose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Are we leaving reminders for the next generation? Are we reminding them of the Lord's faithfulness in our lives, what he's done for us, how he's acted for us? How often do we remind one another of how God has worked in the past, how he's presently working, and how he will work in the future? Peter's given us three reminders in his action. Next, Peter has a a call to awaken. Uh, You may be wondering where that is. Uh, In verse 13, he says, he has that Greek word to stir you up, to stir you up. I expected this to be the same as Paul when he's talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, thinking about rekindling a fire. But that's not what he's saying here. He's telling him to wake up. Wake up. Now, I was thinking about this. There's a couple of different ways you can wake someone up. Usually you wake up your spouse gently, nicely. Hey, wake up. Your kids, maybe not. You come in with an air horn or something else. You wake up, wake up. 
Um, I think Peter's intentions are more towards the latter. He's trying to tell us, wake up. And the reason why I say that is the Greek word is the same one used in Matthew 8. So turn with me to Matthew 8, uh, 23 through 27 to get us an idea of, uh, to give us an idea of what this word means. And so uh, to wake up. Matthew 8, 23. This is a very uh, familiar story of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, So uh, let me read here. When Jesus got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came in and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. That same word for woke him is the same one that Peter's using here of wake up. We need to wake up in the church, don't we? We are, <laughs> seem like we're sleepwalking. Maybe have you think about this. Are you awake or are you asleep? As you go through this life, are we just going through the motions, doing what we think we need to do, or are we be those who are awake and listening to what God has to say? So he has this call to awaken. And then fourthly, in his actions, Peter's view of life. Uh, it doesn't come across here in the NASB, but he says, uh, lay aside my earthly dwelling. In the New King James, it's rendered tent. Uh, the thought is like a, a tent or a temple. So first he, he thinks about his body as a, a tent. And William MacDonald says, just as a tent is a temporary dwelling for travelers, so the body is the structure in which we dwell during our pilgrimage here on earth. Now, I don't know about you, but no matter how nice my tent is, I don't want that to be my permanent residence. Right? Our houses are more sturdy. They have heating and cooling. They have indoor plumbing. I could go on and on of the benefits of a permanent home over a a tent, but um, you get the idea. But the mindset Peter takes is one of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had. Uh, In Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, I'm going to read a couple verses here in Hebrews 11. We get this mindset of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 and then skip down to 13. It says this of Abraham, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You read this in 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Peter has this type of mindset that he is a pilgrim, that this 
what we see here is not all that there is. It's not even what he's striving for. It's a, a temporary dwelling place. And they look forward to the promises that were promised to us. Their promises promised to us as well. We read in verse 4 earlier that he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in 2 Peter 1 verse 4. So there's promises to us as well. Do we have that mindset, those eyes to look forward like Peter and Abraham to a future day when the promise will be fulfilled? Do we think like them that it's the, this is a temporary, temporary place? But Peter doesn't just think of his, his body as a, a tent, a temporary dwelling. He considers it a, a tabernacle. Uh, King James Version renders it a, a, a tabernacle or a dwelling place of God. Um, in Acts chapter 7, the same uh, Greek word is used. And so I, I want to go there quickly to Acts uh, 7 to see, to, to give us some insight on what this uh, verse or this word means. It's not just a a tent, but also a dwelling place. Acts 7, uh, 44 through 46. And I'm kind of coming in the the middle of this. This is uh, Stephen speaking uh, (laughs) to the Pharisees right before he's put to death. But in here is a, a great passage. He says, Our fathers had the tabernacle, of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses direct, directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dis, dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place. Same word that's used there. For the God of Jacob. Our body is the dwelling place. The dwelling place that God resides in. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul asks this question. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. So he not only considers it a tent, he considers it a dwelling place. Just some thoughts on that. Since God dwells in us, how should we act? Just for reflective thought, would we do anything differently than we do now if we had that right view in mind? That he's always dwelling with us. So Peter's view of life uh, shows that he believes that Jesus Christ is coming again. Peter's view of death. Uh, first, he sees death as laying aside of something for something better. This Greek word that he uses, this putting off. Let me go to the to the passage here. He, knowing that laying aside. Laying aside the putting off of my body. It's the only, Peter's the only one to use this, this word. But it, 
but it has this idea of, uh, you know, he he's not dying. It's not something taken from him. He's laying it aside. He's putting it off. And actually, I misspoke. It's not the only place. He actually uses this. Uh, it's used. Uh, he is the only one to use it, but it's used in First Peter as well. In First Peter three twenty one, he uses this in context of baptism, and he says baptism doesn't get you physically clean, but it's the removal or the putting off of dirt of the body, but a good conscience towards God. So it's this idea of taking away. Uh, from you. Just think of the day, just think of the day when our sinful nature will be put off and we will have resurre- be resurrected in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Today we struggle with the weakness of our body, both physically and mentally. We struggle with sin. But here, Peter's looking forward to laying aside all these things. He's looking forward to the day. Secondly, he uses this word exodus to describe his death. And it may not be very, very clear here. It's in verse 15. He calls it my departure. I will, and I, verse 15 of 2 Peter chapter 1, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, my exodus. Now this, this is, um, this had brought a lot of things to my mind. Just thinking of the exodus. But first, the Lord uses the same, this, the same language is used in Luke 9.31 to describe the Lord's death. That is his exodus. So Peter there is linking that thought that just as the Lord was resurrected, so will Peter. So he's looking forward to that in his death. William MacDonald says the word Peter uses for decree, for decease, and that's what it's used in the New King James Version here, is the word for which we get exodus. Death is not a cessation of being, but the departure from one place to another. Hebrews 11.22 helps us link the thoughts here to the exodus of the nation of Israel. Maybe I should read that verse since it's very key here. Hebrews 11.22 says this, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus, same Greek word, of the sons of Israel, and gave orders concerning his bones. Now, as I think of that exodus of the Israelites, they were slaves. Slaves to the Egyptians. We were slaves to sin. The Israelites did no work to free them from their slavery, did they? No, God acted on their behalf. So like us, there's no work that we have done. We have belief in the Lord. We just believe that he will act he acted on our behalf just like they had to believe and take action by putting blood on the doorposts they dwelt in tents in the wilderness through a journey to the promised land linking back to our last discussion of the tents 
Peter thinking of his body as a tent. This world can be a, a wilderness or a wasteland as we journey to the promised land. Finally, they cross the Jordan into the, 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 promised, the promised land. And we look forward to a day when we will be united with God. That he will call us home, call us to be with him. What a great picture of the Christian life Peter gives here by calling his death an exodus. What the Bible teaches, commentary gives this. It says, Peter again uses the expression to describe his outgoing from life as his exodus, indicating that his view of death, not simply as vacating a temporary earthly tent, but as an end of his earthly work. An end of his earthly work. Do we have eyes to see like Peter Peter does? Do we have that same view of death? that we look forward to it? Look forward to no longer having to be in this this flesh. So Peter's actions, Peter's actions speak that the second coming is near. He has Peter's witness, uh, verses 16 through 18. Peter recalls the transfiguration Transfiguration, saying that he both saw and heard the testimony from God the Father. He uses his firsthand account to refute the claims that the second coming of Christ is just a myth or a fable. Travis Schreiner writes, The transfiguration seems at first glance to be a strange event to verify the truth of Christ's future coming. We should note, however, that of all three of the synoptic Gospels, the transfiguration immediately follows the declaration that God's kingdom will come with power, suggesting that the transfiguration represents and anticipates Christ's powerful coming. And that's the two characteristics Peter's trying to emphasize that the Lord is coming. He is coming. And he's not going to come like he came last time. He is coming in power. Christ's return to earth will be different, completely different than his first coming. He will come to rule and to reign. The transfiguration is a testimony that believers should be reminded of that Jesus will come and rule and reign and what he is going to be like. Now, one of the things I I saw in this is that Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. How much more should we give him honor and glory? We tried a little bit this morning, didn't we, in the breaking of bread? just thinking of him and remembering him. But God the Father gave him honor and glory when he was here on earth. So as we remember him, not just in that time though, as we go through our week, we should give him honor and glory. Lastly, the last proof is this prophetic word. Warren Rearsby states, Peter made three affirmations about this word. 
It is a sure word. It is a shining word. And it is a spirit-given word. Peter transitions from his eyewitness account to the prophetic word as a sign that Jesus will come again. He uses the account of the transfiguration as further confirmation of the prophetic word. In other words, the transfiguration further supports the prophetic writing of the Old Testament. The two together complement one another in the support that Jesus will come again in power. Therefore, it is a sure word, a word that can be trusted. Peter then compels us to pay attention that the word of God, because it is a lamp. In verse 19, it says, you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. And it is a lamp, that that word, and it makes me think of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We need a lamp in a dark place, don't we? We need something to help us see in a world that can be confusing, a world where sometimes right is said to be wrong, and sometimes where wrong is said to be right. Where do we have our foundation? Where do we have something to illuminate what the truth is? Here, Peter points to the Word of God. It is the Word that shines in darkness. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't stop there with that this lamp shines in a dark place, but it says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We are awaiting the day of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 3, he talks a little bit more about this day, this day of that he will come in judgment, the day of the Lord. It's a, it's a dark day uh, for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But when that day comes, the Lord Jesus Christ himself will appear. Some versions say the, it's all the morning star. This idea of phosphorus is the Greek word. And in phosphorus, the English literally means light-bearing. As we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the light bearer or the light bringer. He will bring light to the dark world. Instead of the lamp, needing the word of God to see, a lamp have limited view, we will see by the light of the Lord himself. He will illuminate all things. But until then, we have this lamp, this shining word. Lastly, he has the spirit-given word. True prophecy is not an act of human will or human determination, but a movement of the Holy Spirit. J. Vernon McGee says this, The Bible is a God book and a man book. It deals with human life right down to where you and I live and move and have our being. It is God speaking to man in a language that is understandable to him. He talks about this, the prophecy. It's not by human will in verse 21, but men moved, moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved has this picture of ships 
See, Peter was a fisherman. He knew all about ships. But it's the picture of the, the wind and the sail of a ship. The ship, you can move a ship by rowing. It takes a lot of work, though. And you don't get as far. Here, he says, there's, here's the Spirit of God. He is the wind in the sails for them. He is the one who's driving them where they need to go. That's the thought here as men were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. Now the proof that it is a Spirit-given word is that it doesn't contradict itself. Therefore, all Scripture needs to be in concurrence with other portions to avoid misinterpretation. And that's what Peter's trying to get at here uh, in verse 20. J. Vernon McGee says this, What Peter is saying is that there is no portion of Scripture that is to be interpreted apart from other references to the same subject. Warren Wearsby says this, The suggestion is, since all Scripture is inspired by the Spirit, it must all hang together, and no one Scripture should be divorced from the others. You see, Scripture can be misinterpreted. Otherwise, why would Peter go on to warn the believers about false teachers, those who teach falsely? One of the commentaries I was reading said they're not called false prophets. They're not prophesying falsely. They're taking the prophesying, the word of God, and misapplying it. That's why they're called false teachers. Also, in chapter 3 of this same book, Peter warns about those who distort the scriptures, specifically Paul's writings. And just for us to think about this morning, we need to be careful about how we interpret the scriptures to make sure that it's what God says, not what we want it to say. There are a lot of things in this, in this book that I, I tell you I don't like. Or maybe my sinful nature doesn't like. My sinful self does not want to be in line with the word of God, does not want to submit to it. But here, Peter gives us assurance that the scriptures are from God. They are the truth. They are what's to be followed. They are spirit-given word. So I hope you're able to see here this morning that as Peter's going through this, that he's trying to give his uh, the believers confidence that the second coming is true, give them hope, He shows it through his actions, what he does. He shows it through his eyewitness, his his account of the transfiguration. And he shows it through the prophetic word, showing that it was from men, that illuminates in the dark place, that it can be trusted, that it is the truth that we can follow. We'll be going on in our, our... uh, review of Second um, Peter, and we think about these false these false teachers, and so Peter gives instruction to us. I look forward to hearing the rest of what the the Lord has laid on the hearts of those who are teaching us. And so, I hope this has been an encouragement to you as much as it is to me about. Huh, the hope that we have that Jesus Christ will return and return in power. He's coming again for us to call us home. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for 
the surety we have in in your word, the surety we have uh, that Peter has shared with us, that you are coming again for us. Thank you for that hope. And as we live, help us to have the same mindset that Peter did, that this is a temporary dwelling, that you dwell with us. And have the same mindset of Peter that looked forward to his death. He saw it as just a transfer from this life to the next. And so we look forward to being with you. Father, thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.